You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. Morning, Real Life. How you doing? Hey, I am so glad you're here. Big day today, tying down the Sermon on the Mount series. Um, you should applaud for that. Like, yay, we're going to move on to something else. I, I'm, about, I'm good for about four to six weeks on a series, and then I'm just like, hey, let's do something else. I do want to um, invite you to that Mark Gunger event, Laugh Your Way to Happy Marriage. That's going to be a great event. Um, and I want to give you at least three reasons why. Okay. Number one, the content is great. Like, it's great um, and useful. Number two, if you were going to take your husband or wife out on a date, you would spend more than 35 bucks anyway. And this is going to pay way more dividends than taking them out to dinner. And number three, it's cheaper than a divorce. So you should do that. Um, and even if you're like, no, marriage is good. Like, I'm excited. My wife and I are excited to be a part of this, and our marriage is in a great spot. So it's just, it's always easier to change the oil than it is to overhaul the engine, right? So it's good to do that beforehand. Just do some general maintenance on your relationship. It'll be good for you. So you get tickets from Kermit and Jolene down here. They have on these really distinctive T-shirts that say, laugh your way to a better marriage. Um, it'd be really hard to find them. Okay, let's jump into this series. You guys ready to go to work? We have been talking about the Sermon on the Mount and about how Jesus is inviting us to consider developing the inner man, that the spirit of the law is about putting us in a position where we have to be able to, to forgive and we have to be able to have compassion and we have to love people where they are and all these things that make following the rules uh, transformational for us because the, the rules aren't just about making a checklist. They're about developing the inner person in us so that we can have the right kind of character in the world. That way we put our God on display well. We don't just keep the rules and be dogmatic and pointed about anybody who doesn't measure up to the standard. Um, maybe you can relate to that. Maybe there's a couple of churches that have been known to do that. Maybe. Um, I don't know. But the, I would just invite us to consider the possibility that the foundational reality of the Sermon on the Mount is that the rules are there to help us develop our inner character, not so that we can make God happy. God is happy with you. He already was before he gave us the rules, okay? And so today, we're going to tie this down with a very popular passage, and um, surprise, context matters, exclamation point. It's going to be one of those things where once we understand kind of what's going on with the passage, it's going to open up for us some things that maybe we didn't see before in this passage. And it's a great way for Jesus to do his big in conclusion. And so I want to um, read Matthew chapter 7. We're going to close it down. It says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them. Remember last week we talked about orthodoxy and orthopraxy, right? right? Right thinking versus right doing. So what Jesus is saying is everyone who hears these words and has right doing with them, that does them correctly, just submit that, um, will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. And the rain fell and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. 
and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Now let's tie these last couple of verses down here real quick. First of all, there's two kinds of rabbis in the ancient world. There's Torah teachers, and then there's rabbis who have their own mantle, what's called shmicha, a covering. Um, if you're interested in spelling that later, some of you, I gotta research that word, just let me know afterwards, I'll tell you. Um, this is a rabbi who spoke under his own authority. He spoke a new yoke. He was so insightful, so gifted by God that he spoke a new yoke. Torah teachers aren't allowed to give their own commentary on anything. They're obligated to promote and teach the yoke that they were handed. That's a, and that's, there are like 20 rabbis in the history of the Jewish world that had their own yoke all the rest of the rabbinic system was all obligated to carry the yoke that they had been handed. So what stuns them about this teaching isn't so much the insight about it, that what stuns them about it is that he is teaching as a rabbi who has his own anointing, his own shmicha, which raises an amazing question, where did he get it? Come with me to Israel and we'll talk about it. Now, that being said, I want to go back and pull apart the parable that Jesus tells. We know this parable. We've heard it before. What are we, what are we going to talk about that we haven't already said? Um, wise man builds his house on the rock. Foolish man builds his house on the sand. And the rains come and the wise man's house makes it and the foolish man's house collapses because it's built on sand. Now, there's a problem with that. If you're a builder, you know this to be true. Sand is not bad to build on. In fact, if you go and stand in your garage, your house right now, you will be standing on top of sand. Maybe you stand on concrete. Some of you be standing on garbage because that's what your garage looks like. Uh, you stand on oil stain, but below the concrete is sand. Why? Because they pack it down. It's really good for carrying weight because once sand is compacted well, um, it doesn't go anywhere. So, the, the fat, like, there's this problem with this parable. Like, it, it doesn't make any sense. Sand isn't bad to build on. My father-in-law built a house in, he lived in Florence, Oregon, on the Oregon coast, and he built a house in the sand dunes, right in the sand dunes, and they, it was great. So they're wrong with building on sand. So what's the problem? What's going on here? Well, I want you to think about something. The Jewish people, the Israelites, are desert people. They are desert people. And the context that you grow up in colors the way that you use your language. It, it develops and matures it. If you go to the South, in fact, I'll tell you a perfect example. Um, the other night, my wife and I had some friends over and um, I said, I was, I said, that'll make you feel like a penny waiting on change. And the lady of this couple, that was, she was like, What? I was like, that's a saying I've heard. And my dad was born and raised in Kentucky. There's, there's not a shortage of folksy wisdom in my home, right? Uh, like the little old lady spitting in a dry riverbed that one hot summer, every little bit helps. Like that, these are the kind of sayings that permeated my childhood, right? From, now, that, in the Pacific Northwest, it doesn't make any sense. I say that in Kentucky, people are like, yeah, boy, 
That's like they connect with that. They know exactly what, like your context shapes what you, if you, if you are a golfer, like you have your own vocabulary that nobody else understands, right? You talk to a golfer about taking a risk in your life and they're like, hey man, you just got to grip it and rip it. You know what I'm saying? No, <laughs> I don't. No, like this context shapes language, right? This is why the Israelites being desert people, they only have one word for any body of water. Whether it's a bird bath or the Mediterranean Sea, there's only one word for any body of water. Uh, the word is yom, and it's like, why Galilee is called the Sea of Galilee. It's not a sea, it's, not, it's an oversized pond. It's not very big, but they only have one word to describe any body of water. So they call it the Sea of Galilee, which makes Galilee feel really good about itself. Like, we got our own sea, um, kind of. Um, but that's, that's kind of, they, don't, they didn't experience water. They're desert people. What they experienced was a lot of dirt. And they have a lots of words for dirt. And each word matters. Okay? Now I want to show you some pictures to help you understand what's going on in this parable. So let's look at photo number one. This is Mount Timnah. Mm. It's in the southern, southern edge of Israel down by Elat, if you're curious about that. At the bottom of this hill, there's a a replica of the tabernacle. And with good reason, the children of Israel, when they were marching around in the desert for 40 years in the book of Exodus, actually came through this area. You can see why they would complain, right? When I hiked it at the bottom at 8.30 a.m., it was 100 degrees. By the time we hit the top, it was 110. By the time we left the top an hour later, it was 115. And by the time we got back down to the bus, it was 120. <laughs> right? This place is less than stellar. And lush tropical greenery, right? Here's the thing. It does not rain often here, but when it rains, there's nothing in here to hold the water, right? You can see this. There's nothing to absorb the water, and so all the water from the entire mountain range. Let's look at the next photo. This is all the same area, and you can see these gullies. These, they're called wadis. You can see them there. There's nothing here to hold any water, and so this entire region gets rained on. All the water funnels down into just a few wadis, and it creates a flood. Um, if you've seen the, the second Mummy movie, do you remember that one where they were going... And, and at the end, towards the end of the movie, they were almost there. You, the, work with me. I was raised in a Christian home. I was pretty sheltered. The, at, right at the end, the, the raised from the dead voodoo doctor from whatever, Imhotep, is that his name? I don't remember. He causes a flood through the wadi. Same kind of thing. These floods are super powerful. They will move cars. Um, they will, in fact, just recently, like just a couple of months ago, a group of 20 students were hiking in a wadi and there was a flash flood and they were killed. All 20 of them were killed. Well, they say when you 
when you hear the water, you have seven seconds to get out of the wadi or you're dead. Right? Now, next photo. It's another example. This is a big, big wadi. This one's right by the Dead Sea. And you can see there's, like, there's just nothing there. And when this water pushes through, um, what you can see is that it causes erosion. Now, last photo. This is a wadi. And you can tell, where's the greenery? In the wadi. Why? Because that's where the water is. Now, what happens is when the water comes rushing down this wadi, it causes erosion. Now, these are the, the, the walls of the rocks, the canyons, the wadis in Israel are a combination of sandstone and limestone. And they, uh, they create a very specific kind of um, erosion of, of sand, okay? Now, the stuff up on top here, up on top of this wadi, that is not sand, that's dirt. That's different. That's not the same stuff. Down in the wadi, there's, there's this thing that the Israelites call sand. Now, there's two words for sand in Hebrew. One is sand of the seashore, which if you've read your Old, your old Testament, you've heard that phrase. There, your, uh, God's promise to Abraham was that your, your descendants will be as numerous as the sands of the seashore, right? That's a specific kind of sand. That's beach sand, the word that's being used for sand here is the sand that's found in the bottom of a wadi. So the problem isn't that they're building on sand. The problem is where the fool puts his house to begin with. Does that make sense? When he says you build it on sand, everybody's like, why would he put it in a wadi? That would be stupid. Exactly. A person who hears the words of Jesus and does not put them into practice. This is the contrast, and this is important. One who hears these words and does them is like a wise man who builds on the rock. Can you see it? Like up on top. The one who hears these words and doesn't do them. The fool isn't ignorant. He's been given the same teaching he just doesn't want to put them into practice. He doesn't want to forgive. He doesn't want to have compassion. He doesn't want to love people where they're at. He doesn't want to be full of grace. He doesn't want to work on pulling the plank out of his own eye before he deals with the speck in his brother's eye. This is, this is the nature of the fool, right? And what he says is, it's like a guy who puts his house in the wadi. He thinks it's going to be safe, but it isn't. Now, what we know about parables in the, in the Jewish world, all rabbis used parables, and every parable contains what's called a remez. The remez, uh, the word remez means hint. And what it is, is it's a hint of a, either a phrase or a sentence or a word or an idea that is anchoring this story into an Old Testament passage and then you and I have to go back and wrestle, well, where's the remez? Where, what passage is he anchoring it to? Because it's in that passage from the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, that we find the meaning of the parable. So when the disciples say to Jesus, why are you teaching everybody in parables? What Jesus says, in essence, is 
because they got to go find it in the text. Jesus is pushing them back to the text because it's in those passages that they find the heart of God for his people and how they're supposed to act to the nations. So the question that we have to wrestle with with this parable is, where's the remez? And, and I think we found it. Um, you can disagree with me, and I would love for you to prove me wrong. Show me a passage. Show me the passage. Uh, if, if any of you are like, no, I think it's this passage, I would be like, you get a gold star because you went digging. Good job. But I'm right. Um, with that in mind, let's look at, let's look at Job chapter 20 and, and, and read a section out of it. So Job chapter 20, this is the first part of the, of the chapter. It says, surely you know that it has been from old, ever since mankind was placed on the earth, that the mirth of the wicked is brief. What that means is the success or the, the flash, the glory of the, of the wicked is brief. The joy of the godless lasts but a moment. Though the pride of the godless person reaches to the heavens and his head touches the clouds, he will perish forever like his own dung. <laughs> I love that. He said dung. <laughs> Those who have seen him will say, where is he? Like a dream he flies away, no more to be found, banished like a vision of the night. And you're going, well, where's that? How is that connected to the parable? Hang on, we'll get there. This is the setup of the remez. The setup is Job, actually one of his friends telling him, look, wicked people don't last long. They don't last long. Now, if we skip a little further down in the passage, it says this, total darkness lies in wait for his treasures, a fire unfanned will consume him and devour what is left in his tent. The heavens will expose his guilt. The earth will rise up against him. A flood will carry off his house, rushing waters on the day of God's wrath. Such is the fate God allots for the wicked, the heritage appointed for them by God. What Job is being told here by his friend is, look, Wicked people think they're getting away with it, but they're not. So our task, our sacred responsibility then is to live righteously. And I want to show you why that's so important. In Ecclesiastes chapter 2, Solomon, King Solomon, wisest man who ever lived, um, this is a guy who... Uh, he actually had the capacity to go to the end of all the things that we chase that we think will be, bring us happiness. And so he tries. And that's really what the book of Ecclesiastes is all about. Like he goes to the end of all these things that he believes are gonna be bring him happiness and none of them actually bring him the happiness that they promised. They only kind of let him down. And so uh, I wanna look at a section out of Ecclesiastes chapter two because this is actually pretty significant. Here's what it says. Then I turn my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. So we're going to compare being wise and being a fool. What more can a king's successor do than what has already been done? I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise have eyes in their heads while the fool walks in darkness. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. Like, here's what he says. Being wise is better than being a fool. But it doesn't prevent you 
from the same fate. Now, ultimately, death, fate, yes. But what he's talking about in Ecclesiastes 2 is this. Just because you're wise doesn't mean you aren't going to face problems in your life. Think about this. When Jesus tells the story of the wise and foolish builders, whose house gets hit by the storm? Both of them. Both of them get hit by the storm. Jesus' promise to you and I is that we are going to face hard times. It is going to happen. There is no question about it. And there's no amount of righteous living that will prevent difficulty from your life. And so if we go all the way back to the beginning, to the Beatitudes, which is a terrible translation. The word is makario. It means happy, not blessed. And that's another sermon for, you can go back and look at that sermon all the way back at the beginning. But it matters because Jesus is happy, the poor in spirit. What? How? Happy are those who mourn. What? No, no, nope. I'm not happy when I'm mourning. I'm mourning when I'm mourning, right? Happy. Happier the meek, the ones who have the power to take things into their own hands and bring justice, but they don't. They keep that power under restraint. They're the happy ones. Why? Why are they the happy ones? Jesus understands something about trials, pain, suffering, that we often miss. And our assumption for many Christians, their assumption is that we come to Christ so that he can prevent me from suffering. I would suggest that perhaps we walk with the Lord so that he can give our suffering purpose. Let me show you what I mean. Let's look at some passages. First Peter. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice, be happy that you're suffering. What? That feels very sadistic, doesn't it? Like be happy that you're suffering, but rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Here's something that the early church fathers realized. When we suffer, it does something for us. The way to happiness is actually through suffering. And we have this weird definition of happiness in our culture is that we wanna be happy by eliminating all the problems. What we know, definitively know, this has been absolutely proven, is that when your life is void of any trials, problems, hard things, obstacles, you will actually sabotage your life and create problems. You will do it, you will do it, you will do it. There's a number of TED Talks about it if you don't believe me. The key to happiness is actually conflict. Why is that? Well, because we're made to have something to overcome. 
And we're never more alive than when we're staring in the face of a hurricane going, let's do this. Right? Like that's, that's who we are as humans. And when you don't have it, you will create the hurricane. Maybe this is how we ought to start understanding entitled youth. The problem is they don't have a challenge. Everything is handed to them. So what do they do? They create all kinds of problems for themselves. And then they blame you for it. And it's kind of accurate. Because we didn't understand how kids function. We didn't understand the nature of humanity that is actually right there in the scriptures. Look at James chapter 1. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Listen, the perseverance allows you to have joy, but you only develop perseverance through trials. You don't develop perseverance when you try to get away from everything that hurts you. And what we do as human beings is we're like, here's this pain, I'm gonna skirt around it. I'm just gonna pretend like it's not there. And the way I, do, the way I manage my pain is I'm gonna shove it way down deep. Listen, the only way to get past pain is through it, not around it. You will never be able to get around your suffering. You have to embrace it, endure it, grieve it, heal from it, and move forward. And happiness waits on the other side. It's just the way it is. You're like, but that hurts. Yeah, but guess what? Joy is on the other side of that. Joy is on the other side of that. Let's look at one more, Romans chapter five. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. There's that P word again. Suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. The reason we should rejoice in our sufferings is because as we walk through those, and don't get me wrong, you walk through, and I, I know this, like, I know enough about statistics and I know some of your stories that even if I don't know your stories, here's what I know. There's a lot of really, really hard, deep suffering and pain in this room. I'm not minimizing your pain. And I'm not telling you you should walk out of here and feel great that you were abused. No, no. What I'm saying is when we allow Jesus's words to open up, penetrate, and scrub that pain. And you can't do this by yourself. You gotta do this with, with somebody who knows how to steward that. But when we allow the words of Jesus to penetrate that pain, healing comes. Perseverance is developed. 
And perseverance develops character and character produces hope and hope does not disappoint us. But the way to that hope is not around your pain, it's through it. And so with that in mind, we're gonna move towards communion and we're gonna do a couple of things here. One is, um, Terry talked about those buckets. We're gonna send those from the outside to the middle. You can drop your card in there. Uh, if you want to put any um, gifts, offerings, ties to the church, you can put that in there if you want to. Uh, and then we're also going to take communion together. And communion is something that we do every week as a church. Um, it's something that means the world to us. And if you're new with us, we have an open table. Uh, what that means is anybody who wants to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus with us is invited to partake in communion but we want you to hold those elements till the end and we'll take them all together. Now, while they're getting all that stuff passed out and, and everything's going around, um, I want to work through a few implications for the message, okay? Uh, and these are things that I think are particularly important. They, there, it's possible that there's a lot of different places where the Lord's working on, on your own life with this, and that's wonderful. There's nothing wrong with any of those things. These are just a few things that I think are important for us. Implication number one. Building your house on the rock of Jesus' teaching. Thank you. Doesn't eliminate storms. It gives the storm meaning, and it gives you the character to weather it well. This is what it means to build your life on the teachings of, on the rock of Jesus' teaching. He who hears these words of mine and does them, it gives purpose to the storm. It doesn't eliminate the storm. Storms in our life happen. They do. Jesus' teaching allows us to give them purpose. Second implication True happiness comes when we endure trials well, not when we run from them and avoid them. You cannot find true happiness by avoiding the pain that's happened in your life. That does not happen. That's called repression. And repression is at the root of almost all mental illness. So if you want to go crazy, don't deal with your pain. Like literally, it will drive you nuts. You've got to be willing to face it down. Believing that hope lands on the other side of that. Third implication. Just a question. What parts of your experience are you avoiding because you believe it, it's too painful? Like you're not going to walk out of here today with it fixed. What you're going to walk out of here with is the promise that Jesus gives us that if we're willing to walk through the pain well, to grieve it, to allow it to be processed, healed, hope is on the other side of that. We've just got to be willing to walk that road to get there. And there's this peace right, that we talk about in the Bible. When someone is going through a tragedy, what do we do? We go to their house and what do we pray for? You guys know this. I asked you a question. Like, 
I don't know if you knew that. Uh, when we go to somebody's house, they're in a tragedy. What do we pray for? Peace that passes understanding. Isn't that just one of the most awesome Jesus phrases of all time? By the way, Jesus didn't say it. I mean, like Christian-y phrases. Peace that passes understanding. We act as if what happens is um, we hit a tragedy and then we go and we pray for the peace that passes understanding like it's uh, you have a sickness and we're going to give you an antibiotic shot of peace that passes understanding. And then you're like, I didn't have it, but then you prayed and whoa, I feel great. Let me tell you the truth about the peace that passes understanding. The peace that passes understanding is a decision that was made long before the trial ever hit. It comes from a decision to build my life on the teachings of Jesus and do them long before there was ever a problem so that that character is developed so that as I enter the problem, people are like, why are you so calm in the midst of this? You're like, I don't know. I probably should be sad or I should be grieving. I should be worked up about it, but I'm not. I just have this sense that God has this. Like he's proved himself faithful a thousand times. Why would he bail out now? That doesn't make any sense. Listen, you've got to be willing to go through those painful places. No magic shot of peace that passes understanding is going to happen. You've got to be willing to build your life brick by brick on the teachings of Jesus today. And as we do that, the further suffering that we endure doesn't make, it becomes not such a big deal because our perspective is shifted. One last implication. God's promise is not that the suffering won't be painful, but that he can redeem it and give it meaning. When I was in uh, my master's program, we had a guy that came in to teach a class and the class was on, he was a Christian uh, media business owner. So he made Christian movies um, to which anytime I hear a Christian movie, I immediately go, because <sighs> they're typically just not very good. <laughs> I mean, let's be honest. There are some good ones, and I know I'm going to have 10 people go, have you seen Can I, I Can Only Imagine? Like, I, I heard that was awesome. Cool. As a rule, Christian movies have not been known for their cinematic prowess. Right? Let's, I, I submit for you the Omega Code. Please go watch that one and enjoy it. So this guy was was um, talking about how their company develops storylines for Christian movies, videos, that kind of thing. And he has this wheel that he used to develop it. And everything kind of has to happen in an order, uh, in order for things to be good and correct. So uh, what, he, what he had was like, you're, first of all, you're introduced to the, to the protagonist. And then you're introduced to the antagonist. And then you're introduced to uh, the love interest, and, and, there's, and then there's got to be a tension. And here's the interesting thing. Every great movie ever made, ever, somewhere in the middle of the movie, everything falls apart. Right? Like, usually it's at the end of a chick flick. <laughs> they, I just can't be with you. Like, there's some... Here's the thing about chick flicks. I've watched my share. I've been married 25 years. I have an idea. Let's just sit down and talk about it. 
Like, we can make this movie 20 minutes long if they would just sit down and talk, right? Like, they create this tension of, but, but can I trust him? And can I trust her? Could I say this? Should I? I don't know. And then they're like, I just can't take the tension anymore, Mel. And then finally someone breaks and says, this is how I feel. And the other one's like, I feel that way too. <laughs> you had me at hello, you know. Could have been 20 minutes long. You could have just said it. You could have just said it on the front end. Let's talk. Let's. But the problem is, if you just said it on the front end, nobody wants to watch that movie, right? Why? Because there's no tension. There's no point where things fall apart. There's no, there's none of that. Every great story, in the middle of it somewhere, everything falls apart. It's the rules. Aslan dies in Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe, right? Like, everything falls apart. Now, you guys remember Shakespeare, right? Tut, man, of course you remember Shakespeare. Rememberest thou Shakespeare. Romeo and Juliet, what style of play is that? Tragedy. Why? Because at the end... They don't live happily ever after. She takes fake poison. He sees her, thinks it's real, goes and takes real poison. She comes to, sees him take real poison. She drinks real poison and dies. The end. Right? Here's the thing about your life. The difference between your life being a great story or a tragedy is just at what point in the story everything falls apart. And you get to decide that. Is your life just a tragedy and you give up and quit? Or are you in the middle of a really great story? You get to pick. It's going to be painful either way. But God's promise to you is that he can redeem your pain and give it a purpose. That's why we take communion every week as a reminder to us that the way, the way to joy is through our pain. Jesus understood it. That's why Hebrews 12 says that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. This reminds us that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is given for you. So whenever you eat this bread, do it in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the dinner, he took a cup and he said, this cup, it's a new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. So whenever you drink this cup, do in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the promise of joy on the other side of, the, of our grief. Thank you for the promise of hope that does not disappoint us of peace that passes understanding when we choose to live out your teachings. Thank you, God, for giving our pain purpose. In your name, amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Real Life. If you'd like more information on who we are, what's happening in our church, and how you can get involved, visit us on Facebook and Twitter, and visit our website, liferotp.com.